Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Hello, friends. This is Jeremy Gimpel. Can you all hear me? Excellent. 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 All right. It's lovely to see you all. I love seeing all of your faces, of course. Um, this is a really special time. So this fellowship is going to be relatively unique. Um, for those of you that are already like caught up on our YouTube channel and caught up on our WhatsApp groups, you've seen that I've been putting out a lot of short videos as things are happening. You know, I'm kind of hit with a moment of inspiration to see things in a specific way. And I've been sending out a lot of short videos, but sometimes there are thoughts um, and ideas that you need time to really unpack. And so today, that's what I'm going to do. So Ari happens to not be feeling very well today. And Tahila is busy with everything. So actually today, in amazing timing and in real providence, I have this time with us together. And what I want to do is from the beginning, go all the way down, I believe, to the depths of the spiritual reality of this world. And so I haven't yet articulated this yet. I've tried my best to start, but I'm hoping that as I talk now, the words will manifest themselves and this idea will come across as best as I can. But there's so much that's happening in Israel. Um, so much mixed emotions, the highs and lows, and the hostages that are coming home now and the ceasefire. I it's like it's a cocktail of emotions that sort of hit you all at the same time. Like until now it's sort of been like a wave of high and then a terrible low and then you're back up again and then low again. And now it's just a fusion of disappointment that we've stopped winning the war and called for a ceasefire, relief that our children are finally out of the pits of hell in tunnels under the ground held by Hamas terrorists, and they've come home. And I don't know if you've followed the news or been able to see some of them, but for those of you that um, haven't, this is just a short video of a nine-year-old boy that was locked away in the dungeons of hell. And this is just a short clip of him reuniting with his family. It's like the most unbelievable thing. So I, I can't even imagine the emotions that are going on there. It's like beyond. Um, but what I've come to realize, and I think that everyone is realizing this, is that this war is a very spiritual war. And we're up against a very spiritual enemy. And we'll get into that in just a little bit. But, you know, it's hard for us to really wrap our minds around the fact that their religious worship is to behead children to rape and to murder as they're chanting their god is great their god is great i mean we would blow a shofar they would take an axe to an innocent civilian that's their act of worship and so that's a very dangerous enemy it's um and what do we have then we have then to fight it on its level on a spiritual level and there was a, a tehillim group a group of women mostly, that say the Psalms every day. Their group reads the entire book of Psalms every day. They each take a specific chapter 
and that by the end of every day, they finished the book of Psalms together. And they asked me to make them a video because they had seen some of my short videos that I've been releasing. And the truth is, I'm like, I'm just so busy to make a video for one group in the five towns that's making to Hillenburg. Like, I just, I don't know what to do with that. And then the same week, I was sent a picture. And it was obvious to me that the message needed to be delivered. And so before we pray together, I want you to see this video um, that I made just on Friday. And it's about the power of prayer. Shalom, this is Jeremy Gimpel from the Arugod Farm. This is a video for all of the people around the world that are saying to Hillen for the people of Israel during this war. You know, the Arugod Farm is situated in the southern mountains right outside Bethlehem in what's called the Mountains of Zif. And according to the Midrash, that's the place where King David would go out with his sheep and where most of the book of Psalms was written when David was just alone out in the wilderness. And that's where he hid uh, from Saul after he killed Goliath. And so the people that are saying to Hillam now are quite literally, in my opinion, saving the people of Israel. And I was asked to make this video by one of these uh, Psalm group leaders. And at the same week, I saw this picture from Gaza where a soldier was literally saved by the book of Tehillim. It was carried right on him and the bullet stopped like a bulletproof vest from hitting him and it was wedged inside the book of Tehillim. And I found that to be so significant because King David was a warrior of Israel, but he was also the composer of the Psalms. And to every physical reality in the world, there is a spiritual counterpart. And just as the soldiers of Israel are going out and fighting for Israel in this physical world, we have people around the world that are fighting for us in a spiritual war. And I think that that Tehillim represents that, to see that what stopped that bullet? Was it the physical book of Psalms or was it the spiritual Tehillim and the Tefillot, the prayers that people around the world are praying for their protection? So to me, that was just a sign showing you that your Tehillim is what's protecting those soldiers. And so thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your chizuk. These guns, that's not what's going to win the war. It's not going to come through just force or just power, but through the spirit of Hashem. So thank you all for all of your prayers that are protecting us here in Israel. Yeah. So what I want to do with that is we have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, maybe once-in-a-lifetime, I don't know exactly the language, but we have the most unique opportunity with this fellowship, where there are right now hundreds of people from all over the world that are together on behalf of Israel, united with Israel, from the United States, South America, to Europe, Africa, Asia. It's just such a remarkable testimony of what could be in the world. And to use that opportunity now to bring us all together in prayer because Israel needs prayer now. And this war will be won through prayer. It will be won not through the idea. It will only be won with Hashem revealing himself in the world and through miracles. Because Israel right now, I mean, think about it. We are surrounded by a billion people that want to throw us into the sea. Let's just call it what it is. We're a tiny country the size of New Jersey. We have enemies on the west in Gaza. We have enemies on the east 
in Judea, in Samaria, and in Jordan. We have enemies in Hezbollah in the north. And we have Qatar that's even farther away, and Iran that's farther away. And they're all just waiting to wipe us out. Now, honestly, does that make sense that we're going to win? And to think that we're strong enough, smart enough, big enough, no, we're not. The only reason Israel exists is because it is God's will that it exists. And so bringing him into this conversation, bringing his presence into this war, recognizing the truth is what this war is all about. Just nothing has changed. Just like the salvation from Egypt was that Pharaoh and the world know that God runs the world. The whole world, no one's paying any attention to the Ukraine war. The Ukraine-Russia war, that's still happening. No headlines there anymore. Everyone is watching the war in Israel because soon Hashem's name will be won and Israel will change the world. And how will that happen by us bringing his presence into the world throughout the world with us praying? And so with that, let's take this opportunity to bring our hearts together to bring our minds together, to bring our words together through this land and lift it up to God in our worship. Hashem, Master of the world, Avinu Shibashamayim, our Father in heaven, look down on your children. Look down on us and guard us, protect us, bless us, give us the strength and the courage we need now. Thank you for bringing some of our hostages home. Thank you for guarding our children and saving them from the mouths of the monster, from the pits of hell. Hashem, give us strength to win this war, not only for the hostages, but for all of the good people in the world. Reveal yourself in this world. Vanquish the evil and bring your light into the world. We need your light in this dark time now more than ever. Hear our prayers and watch the actions of our faith. Wage this war for us. Empower us to do what we need to do and to become who we need to become as we battle for your kingdom. Shem looked down at this fellowship. Hundreds of people from all over the world are here for your people, for your land, for your capital, Jerusalem, and for your name's sake. All we want is for your name to be lifted above all names, for the world to recognize the truth and the love that you have for this world. Shem, shine your light into our lives and may the light that you shine from Zion banish all the darkness in the world. Bless every member of this fellowship. Give them strength as they unite with us, as they join us to bring your light into the world. Give us what we need to accomplish your will. May your will be done through us in these times and may we take our place in this unfolding story that you are the author of. Shem, thank you for every day that you give us on this planet. It's a gift and we recognize it. Thank you for all our loved ones that are healthy and that are alive. Thank you for the strength. Thank you for the health. Thank you for all of the gifts that you've given us. Thank you for creation. And may we bring this creation to the next stage in its history. Hashem, send us the Shiach now. Send us the Shiach now to lead us to victory. Amen. Okay, my friends. And so 
here's what I want to do today. I hope it's successful. You know, my short videos, they're so short. They're so sweet. This one is going to go deep. And I'm going to try to go as deep as I possibly can, as, as much as my mind allows me to. And I'm going to try to share that today to really go to the heart of what this war is about. Because if we don't know what this war is about, then how are we ever going to win? So we need to penetrate the core of it. And, you know, it's not a surprise, but Tahila and I are very big fans of Jordan Peterson. And it's not only because of the many brilliant things that he says, but in some ways he's taught me how to think about things in a new way. And so I want to give credit where credit's due because the way that I'm approaching this war has to do with the teaching that I learned from Jordan Peterson. So what I want to do now is just share this very short clip because that will be sort of the key that will unlock the rest of this fellowship. If you delve deeply enough into the battle between two idea sets and you keep going down, as you go down to more and more fundamental layers, you approach the religious because the religious is by definition the most, and I'm offering a definition here, that religious is by definition the most fundamental. And so I think when you're looking at something like the culture war that's going on, you can see it as a battle between ideas, but then when you trace the ideas back, you mm -hmm. see it as a battle between narratives and when you trace the narratives back, you see as a battle between fundamental narratives. And as you approach the most fundamental narrative, you are treading on religious grounds. Okay, so that's the opening, meaning there's a, a war of ideas that's going on, but then you can go down and then you can go down and you can rip that layer away and rip that layer away. And the more you go down, the more you tread on religious grounds because the war in Israel is the deepest and the most ancient war in the world. And if we don't penetrate to the root cause of the war, then we'll never to we'll never be able to emerge victorious or enter into an era of peace. So let me give you an example. Most of the noise online, they have arguments that go back and forth, and almost all of the time they don't address the deeper layers of the war. For example, the slanderers of Israel will be like, the war in Israel is because of the Israeli occupation of Gaza. And then the Hasbara Haganah. Israel expert will be like, well, there hasn't been an Israeli presence in Gaza since 2005. There is no occupation at all. In fact, Israel gave over the Gaza Strip to the people in Gaza in an act of peace and gave them an opportunity to build an independent self-governing country in Gaza. Um, so then the slanderous attackers of Israel will say, um, this war is Israel's fault because since Israel disengaged from Gaza, Gaza has become an open-air prison and you've locked the people of Gaza in this prison which of course is also a lie. And the slanderer and the Haganah, you know, Hasbara, Israel experts, Israel advocates will say, that's not true. Gaza is built on a beautiful coastline. It has a border with two countries, Egypt and Israel. And like any country, it has border control and monitors the people that go into Israel and out of Israel. And the massacre on October 7th only proves why Israel needed that border to protect herself from the jihadist, murderer, rapist, toddler, kidnappers, an open-air prison. That's a lie. Israel and the rest of the world invested billions of dollars. More money was given to Gaza than Germany after World War II in the Marshall Plan. And instead of choosing to live as peaceful neighbors and build schools and build an economy, their leaders stole billions of dollars to their own pockets, and they built terror tunnels, bought missiles and guns, and invested all of their resources with the ultimate goal of killing Jews. 
And so the poverty and the dysfunctionality of Gazan society is solely because the Gazan people and their leadership elected and supported the Hamas, and that's just what it is. So that those arguments, let's let's go a little bit deeper. So the haters of Israel will say, uh, the state of Israel shouldn't be there at all. And they'll chant, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. They'll say, we have to decolonize Israel. And so that's another level. They're no, so it's not really about the Gaza thing. What they're saying is Israel shouldn't be there at all. Okay. Um, so then it's not really about the 1967 borders. It's not about an open air prison. The war against the Jew is justified because Israel has no right to exist as a Jewish state in the land of Israel at all. Okay. So that's another layer down. And then the people that side with Israel will obviously side the opposite on that next layer. The people of Israel successfully rebuilding their ancient homeland is anything but unnatural. The Jewish return to the land of Israel is the most successful decolonization in human history. It's like Germans are from Germany. Mexicans are from Mexico. Chinese are from China. There is nothing more natural and morally right than Jews living in and building Judea. So calling Jews colonizers in the same capital where King David reigned 3,000 years ago is not just wrong, it's the anti-truth. It's the opposite of the truth. But as we're going to go deeper and deeper, you're going to see the other side, the haters of Israel. Truth doesn't matter. But we're going to get to that in just a little bit. And also blaming Arab violence on the existence of the Jewish state, as if the state of Israel is what caused this war. That's also not true. Let's go down even deeper to this level of argument. All you would have to do is look at the Jews who were attacked by Arabs in the land of Israel long before 1948, when the modern state of Israel wasn't even declared yet. There was no independent state. The British ruled this land, and yet still, between the years of 1925 and 1935, over 300 Jews were murdered by Arabs before the modern state of Israel. So what does this have to do with Gaza or the 67 borders, even the 1948 borders? Muslims were persecuting Jews in the land of Israel before the state of Israel existed. So then maybe the anti-Israel side would say, it's the fault of the Jews. The Arabs in the land already felt that the Jews were coming back to establish a third commonwealth, and that provoked the Arabs to violence. So to blame Arab-Muslim violence on the Jewish aspirations to return to the land of Israel is also ridiculous. Because if you know a little bit of Jewish history, Muslims have been persecuting Jews ever since Jews rejected Muhammad and refused to convert to Islam. It didn't matter where Jews lived. It didn't matter where they wanted to live. They were Jews, and they were hated, and they were a target. And so this is an excerpt from a very famous letter written by Maimonides. I think we've mentioned this before, the Rambam, to the Jewish community of Yemen more than 800 years ago. It's known as Igeret Teman. The letter was written by the Rambam to encourage the Jews who were so demoralized and downtrodden in total despair because of the murder, the persecution, and the horrible Arab-Muslim oppression their community endured living as a Jewish minority in Yemen. And you see where the green line is. I'm just going to translate it directly into English, but this is what it says. With all this, we will not be able to be saved from their abundant evil and violence at all times. And all the time that we pursue peace with them, they pursue us with cruelty and war. And so saying 1967, 1948, mm, this is 800 years ago. 
Muslims outside of the land of Israel were persecuting Jews. And so what do we do here? Just as they have persecuted every minority that has ever had the misfortune of dwelling in their midst, the Muslims persecuted the Jews. And today, nothing has changed. The murderous hate, the jealousy, the venomous religious anger toward the Jew, it's rooted deep into the religious fabric of this war. And so to any honest observer, it's clear that this has nothing to do with Gaza, nothing to do with politics. This is a religious war. Now we've gone now to a deeper level. So let's keep going. The Jews were the first people that are mentioned in the Quran who rejected Muhammad. And there are many quotes in the Quran that can be understood to be really anti-Jewish. And the fact that the Jews live right now in the heart of the Muslim world, have built the most successful, thriving, free, attractive country in the region, surrounded by defunct, failing, uneducated, poverty-stricken Muslim countries, is such an embarrassment for Islam that the hate of the existence of the state of Israel, it's like an existential hate. It's like a living contradiction to their entire worldview. How can Islam be the ultimate truth if all the blessings and prophecies are being fulfilled through the Jews in Israel and not through the Muslims around them in the Middle East. So many people tend to chalk this up as a religious war between two or three religions. Like, well, it must be Islam versus the Jews and the Christians. But if we delve a little bit deeper, we're going to see something. It transcends that. It goes deeper than religion. And so let's go now to the next level. Because when we go deeper, the roots of this war, they're deeper than titles or man-made organizations or denominations or affiliations. It really runs all the way down to what religion really means. And what do I mean by that? You know, there are layers that we need to uncover. And as you can see, though, like there are Muslim people and even Muslim countries like Dubai, the United Emirates, Bahrain and Saudi Arabia that have condemned Hamas and their heinous acts and have actually stood alongside Israel in this conflict from the first day after October 7th. So that needs to like, there's like question marks there. Wait, it's not just Jew against Muslim. It's not, it's not, it's too simple to just chalk it up like that. So what is it? So thinkers like Sam Harris say it's important to define the enemy here. It's not that the terror government of Gaza called Hamas is the enemy. It's the religious ideology of jihad. The war, in his mind, is between Western civilization and Islamic jihad. So Hamas, Hezbollah, ISIS, Boko Haram, they have all taken a particular version of Islam, and that's the enemy. But in my opinion... It's a more exact, coherent articulation of the war in Israel, but and it explains why Dubai and Saudi Arabia despise the Hamas, and that they're not jihadist countries, and in their mind, the savage barbarians of Hamas are seen as a perversion and an embarrassment to Islam, but that articulation and that distinction, it's not enough, and we're not at war with the Hamas. We're not even at war with Islam. But we're at war with the jihadist ideology, like it's, you know, like a, it's an idea. And that's an important distinction. But that's not the deepest level of the conflict because they're layers. And the deeper and deeper we go, 
than religious interpretations of texts and ideology and theologies, we can go deeper than that. And so I want to try to take time and really unpack this to go beyond religion. I mean, we're going to go all the way down to Abraham, where there was no religion. Who is a part of the covenant of Abraham? What was he bringing them into? It wasn't to a religion. Abraham didn't have a religion. And the next part is the bizarre um, allies in this war, because um, it's brought the transgender LGBTQ movement and extremist Muslims together. It's in, brought in environmental activists like Greta Thunberg and the most prestigious universities together and the KKK together. Huh? How did all of those people become united in this? Because the outer layers, as we said, they, they, they don't fit. But what I'm saying is that when you go deeper and deeper down, deeper and deeper down, actually in their core, all of those movements are actually one. And so I want to get to the core of it. What could possibly bring those weird bedfellows together? What is the unifying force behind these seemingly disjointed, unrelated, they're like even opposing movements? And so, you know, when Queers for Palestine march together, shouting from the river to the sea, I mean, that transcends the political movement of gay rights that they claim to champion. And it transcends religion because the Quran absolutely forbids homosexuality. So when a gay man is caught or outed in Gaza, they're going to throw him off the road or drag him behind a car alive, ensuring that that gay man dies a slow, gruesome, excruciatingly painful death. So we have to ask, how are these two forces together? What's brought them together? And how can we say then that this battle is between jihad and Western civilization when the environmental activists, the university academics, and the LGBTQ movement claim to be the most progressive part of Western civilization. So they're not at war with each other at all. They're marching together against Israel. And when it comes to Israel, all of these movements are allies. And so look at this picture that was from a, a British Columbia, the university. You see what it says there? It says here, trans liberation cannot happen without Palestinian liberation. Like, on one hand, I saw all of the comments when that was first laid out saying, you know, that doesn't make any sense. If Hamas were victorious and the Islamic Jihad were liberated and free to do whatever they desired, they would first rid all of Israel, of any LGBTQ people, and then they would expand their reign of intolerance to the rest of the world and find all of those people in Canada and kill them too. And every comment I saw on Twitter said pretty much the same thing. It was like, ah, these people are so stupid. The universities are teaching intersectionality, stupidity to their students. Queers for Palestine, that's like saying chickens for KFC. I mean, that's just ridiculous. How could they be so dumb? Um, but I think that these queers know that the Islamic Jihad is against homosexuality. And yet still, they're hanging huge banners that are saying trans liberation cannot happen without Palestinian liberation. Maybe the trans don't understand even what they're saying. Maybe they do. If there's anything we've learned from October 7th, it's to believe people when they say what they believe and who they are. And I think on a deeper level, they are articulating a profound truth that trans liberation cannot happen without the destruction of Israel. And let's go deeper. 
When you delve to the deepest level of ideas and fundamental narratives of this war, you discover how similar jihadists and the environmentalists and the transgenders are. And in many ways, they feed off each other and they're rooted in the same fundamental root narratives about the world. And then we can see that that sign is more true than meets the eye. So if you delve deeper into these two idea sets and you go deeper and deeper down, you're going to approach something that transcends religion. It's beyond religion. And the more you go down, it's almost like a babushka doll. Are you guys familiar with the Russian dolls, babushka dolls, where you take like one head of the doll off and then there's a smaller doll. And you take that head of the small off and then there's a smaller one. And you keep on going and you keep on going in layers. And layers. No, this is about Gaza. Oh, no, this is about the 67 borders. Oh, this is about the state of Israel. Oh, this is about Islam. Oh, this is about Jihad. Whoa, we're going deeper and deeper. And all of a sudden, when you get to the littlest doll, the core babushka doll, the more you peel away, the closer you get to the core, then we start getting to something that's like the paradigmatic, like the axioms on which everything else is built, the existential grounds, the prism through which we see religion. It's like how we actually interact with the entire world because it's so fundamental, it's so core to who we are. And in that core, all of those movements are united. So what is that core? And that's what I want to discuss today. So now let's go to the, I don't really know what to call it, uh, other than the core babushka doll, but that doesn't sound very intelligent. Like the axiomatic root narrative of this war, maybe that's like a more intelligent way to say it. But first, we need to articulate them. And then I want to expose like this truth that I feel like we really need to grapple with. Because what's most important to understand is that we live out our most fundamental narratives. Like the, what you tell yourself about the world and how you see the world, that doesn't just stay detached in some philosophical idea. Your worldview, it becomes what you do in the world. Your identity emerges from your worldview. And without bringing the most basic premise of your worldview to surface, we can't really understand anything about the sides of this world. And so that's what I want to do. I want to go to the heart of it the Jewish side and the other side, the progressives, the left, the transgender, the Hamas. How, what are the, the inside of the inside of the inside? How do we get to that? And as we unpack, it's just uncanny. But the ideological, political, social, the deepest level, they're very similar. And so it's not a coincidence that Hitler and the Nazi party the National Socialist Party were allied with the jihad in Israel. The, that they found the Arabic translated Mein Kampf in Gaza. That's not a coincidence. They're all rooted in the same core. And so let's go down to the very beginning. Let's try to get to like, what is the DNA there? What's the heart of it? What is the most base prism that colors everything? And so if we're going to go that deep and we're going to talk in religious terms, then it's like we're going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We're going to go all the way back to Abraham. And what was the transformation that took place for the people who joined Abraham and Sarah? They weren't just joining a religion. There was no religion. And so what makes Dubai, Bahrain, and apparently the leader of the next generation in Saudi Arabia different 
from the Islamic regimes around us that are so hellbent on jihad. And so I think that the only way to answer such a deep question is we have to go to Hebrew because Hebrew, it, it can go to like one word and then we'll articulate that word maybe in a lot of words. But if we're going all the way down to the, the core, core, core being, it needs to be a Hebrew word because everything is really defined by Hebrew. And then what we'll do is we're going to unpack those words because the translation for the Hebrew words that I'm about to use are wrong. They're not wrong. They're just incomplete. And so let's, if I were to like, let's say, pull both of these sides into core, the essence of the war. The Hebrew words are tum'ah and tahara. Tum'ah and tahara. Usually tum'ah is translated as impurity and tahara is translated as purity. But those are, what do those words even mean? Those that pure, pure what? Pure gold? Like we got to really go into this now. And so the ideas of Tum'an Tara in some ways have really been lost or, or made irrelevant in our modern lives because those ideas and concepts are really only relevant for the temple in Jerusalem. And there are laws in a huge corpus of Jewish writings over thousands of years that deal with Tum'an and Tahara. But because we don't have a temple anymore, we just don't have it. So right now we translate it as pure and impure, but those words don't really explain anything. And let's go deeper. What are the what are, what are these words? So when you learn the laws of Tum'ah and Tahara, they revolve not around purity, but around death. Tum'ah is death, like a death force, and Tahara is a life force. And so, the primary source of impurity in the world, of tum'ah in the world, is a human dead body. If you come in contact with a dead body, you become tameh, you become impure. And until today, even though there's no temple, priests today, kohanim today, are forbidden to enter into cemeteries. You know, my, one of my rabbis, Rabbi Shlomo Katz, he's a priest. He doesn't go to any of the funerals in the cemetery because he's a priest. So even until today, Kohanim don't go into cemeteries. They can only go into a cemetery for the burial of their closest family relatives. Because you cannot go into the temple when you are Tameh, when you've encountered death. When you've come in contact with death, you are Tameh. When you are filled with life, you are Tahor. So instead of pure and impure, which are sort of inaccurate words, the more accurate thing to say, Tahor is a life force, Tameh is a force of death. And so now let's go back to the base covenant that God tells Israel as we enter into the land of Israel. This is Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. And here's what he says. Can we put it up on the screen? Do we have that slide? Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. I call heaven and earth to bear witness against you. And I have set before you Life and death, blessing and curse, and therefore choose life that both you and your descendants may live. And so it's like, I've said it before you, life and death, blessing and curse, good and evil, it's all right here. Those are the two sides of this war. Now, 
there's an ancient prophecy, and I never really know what to do with it because it's not in our Bible. But miraculously, there was a prophecy that was saved in the caves about 20 minutes outside the Arugot farm, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so no one really knows, were they prophets? Were they false prophets? But I take it as providence that those scriptures were saved for such a time. And in their prophecy, they say at the end of days, it will be a war between Bnei Ha'or the Bnei Ha'koshim, the people of light and the people of darkness. And I think that they were touching on exactly this point, that on the inside and the inside, there are people that are tahor, filled with light and life, and there's people that are filled with darkness, that are actually filled with death. But what does that mean to be filled with death? So let's go deeper into this view. Imagine what it means. To enter into the temple, you have to be tahor. The temple represents heaven on earth. You want to enter into heaven? You want to go to be in God's presence, you have to be filled with a life force. How do jihadists enter into their afterlife? Through death, killing, and dying themselves in battle. That's how they enter into their heaven. Our heaven is like, you got to stay away from death. If you come into contact with death, you need a red heifer, you need many days, you need a whole thing to cleanse yourself from the force that you've encountered with death, and only with a life force can you enter into our heaven. There, it's like the exact opposite battle. But it's not just that. What does that mean? That they worship death. That they worship that. Something else is going on here. It's like the sacred act, the worship of death. It's like, it's hard for us to understand because like, I blow a shofar. <laughs> and if I'm really good, I'll blow it really nicely. I'll shake a lulav and etro, and I'll buy a beautiful yellow citrus fruit for my holiday. And here it's like, they behead children and murder some innocent people in the most grotesque way. And they chant, Allah Akbar, Allah is the greatest. People don't understand that murder, rape, torture, that's their religious service. That's their form of worship. They worship their God by killing others, by dying themselves. And the more gruesome the act, the better the service. It's like so far from what we are used to, for something that we can wrap our minds around, it's like, so evil. It's like Amalek evil. We don't know what to do with that. And so what do we do? So we have to go a little bit deeper. <laughs> you know, it's it's when we say like, okay, um, we're going to kill all of the Hamas. That's not really a deterrent. Like we talk about human shields and how immoral that is. But if you get into their mind, they think they're doing those children and civilians a favor by sending them to the afterlife. Because this world, in their mind, this is a world of death. This world is bad. This world is fallen. And oh, there we get to another like doctrine that the Jewish people never accepted. This world is problematic. This world is broken. It's not a fallen world. It's not a world that you're in sin. No, that's, that's why the Catholic Church has really taken that doctrine and they've never sided with Israel. They've never wanted to bring life into the world. They don't have children. Their priests are against being a life force in the world. This world isn't worth living for. This world is worthless compared to the next world. And so now we can really get to something here. What is the deepest question that's separating the lovers of Israel and the haters of Israel? 
It's the most basic question about existence. If we believe God is one, not that he's one out of many gods, like he's the greatest. No, no, no. He is one. He's one with everything. There is nothing other than him. He is existence and he is the creator of existence. So the fundamental question we need to ask ourselves, is existence good or is existence bad? And when you get to the core here, you'll see something remarkable. Do we have a benevolent worldview? Is the world good? Is there hope? Can there be progress? Is the world moving toward redemption? Is life good? Or is it a malevolent worldview where this world is hopeless? This world is on track for climate disaster. This world is overpopulated. Don't bring kids into this world. Why bring kids into this tragic disaster called existence? And if you exist here, better to get out. Better to get out. And, you know, it's interesting. Just a week ago, um, Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, clearly one of the most brilliant men in the world. It's hard to not like him now that he's coming to Israel to go visit the Kibbutzim. He's landing in Israel tomorrow. As all the big money in the world have really sort of turned their back on Israel, he's allowed free speech. He's targeted all of the lies against Israel. And he's coming to Israel tomorrow to go visit the Kibbutzim and see with his own eyes what the Hamas did to the Jewish people in Israel. And he just posted this tweet a couple of weeks ago. And I found it to be really timely. And this is what he said. He said, the real battle is between extinctionists and the humanists. The extinctionists and the humanists. And so he doesn't have the language to articulate Tahor in Tamil. But what he's saying here is there are people that want the human race to be extinct. They hate existence. They hate life. And they want it stunned. They want to vaccinate the people in Africa to make sure they can't have children. And they want to stop us from using cars because of some climate disaster and tragedy that's going to unfold and everything is doomed and everything is gloom and there's no hope for this world. And then there's what he calls the humanists or what the Hebrew would call the life force, Tahor. When they say there is no hope, what is Israel's national anthem? Hatikva. Hatikva, the hope. And so now we're really starting to get you know, down to something. What's the outcome of believing that this existence is bad and it's better that humans not be created to begin with? What happens is if existence is bad, you're filled with resentment because why was I born here? Why do I have to be here? I have victimhood, victimhood and resentment. You look at all of the enemies of Israel filled with resentment. Look at their marches. They are marching and they're burning things and they're ripping flags off of American flagpoles and desecrating all of the American symbols and they're marching in London, scared, just the resentment. And they're the victims, the victims. What? Who's victimizing? They've all left their Muslim countries to free countries. How are they still the victim? On the deepest level, they're victims. They're victims for being in this world because they hate this world, because they hate existence. And they hate if you hate existence, you hate God because he is existence. He is one with this existence. This is the gift that he gave us and we can choose to make our life a living hell 
or we can choose to build God's kingdom on earth. And that's what this war is really all about. And once, instead of like resentment and victimhood, you see the joy of being alive, gratitude for the gift of life. If you see this world as horrible, as a disaster, climate crisis that's just waiting to happen, then what is truth anyway? It's absurd. So they'll say, Israel is doing genocide in Gaza, which is obviously not true because we see the humanitarian corridors and Israeli soldiers dying. If we wanted to do genocide, we would have done it on October 8th and just ended it and squashed them. So they're lying. And as they're lying, saying that Israel is doing genocide, they're chanting from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, calling for the genocide of Jews in Israel. So they're calling us the genocidal killers while they're actually calling for genocide. So what is truth, really? If existence is disgusting and this whole world is horrible, then what? Truth is now a value? And then we can really start to understand then, why is trans liberation only possible with the liberation of Palestine? Because what does the trans movement really say? I want to make up my own truth. I want to say something that is factually not true. And that's what matters. I want lies to reign. I want to say that if a boy is a girl, it's what I say. The lie reigns, not the truth, not the facts, not the reality. And anyone that knows just a little bit of Israel's history knows that Palestine is a made-up term. There was no Palestinian leaders before 1948. There's no Palestinian currency before 1948. The father of the Palestinian movement, his name was Yasser Arafat. He was born in Egypt. That's not really Palestinian if you're born in Egypt. The whole thing is a fabrication. It's all a lie. And what they're saying is, yes, we can only be liberated once lies reign on earth. Once Palestine is liberated, those Jews, the torchbearers of truth, the living testimony of the God of Israel. As long as they are proclaiming the truth from Zion, then truth reigns and not lie. And the only way for lies to reign is for Israel to be destroyed. And so tumor is death, is decay, crisis, and chaos. Let's bring on more chaos. And tahara is life, growth, progress, and, you know, we say, but listen, everyone dies in the end. No, no, Jews don't say that. We say there'll be a resurrection of the dead. We believe in triatamitim. There is no death. We are just the anti-death to the death. <laughs> We're going to believe in life no matter what. We are the force of life because we represent the force that brought life into this world. And so here's the most important idea. We act out the narratives that we believe. We live out our most fundamental narrative. And so when Dubai, what did they do? They built the highest tower in the world, the Burj Khalifa, because they've rejected that claim of the jihad, that the best way to live in this world is to kill and to die. And now they're building the tallest building in the world. What did Hamas do? They dug tunnels underground in the pits of hell. They're just living out their own narratives. Where Elon Musk is trying to reach the heavens, the Hamas are 
digging tunnels toward hell. You can't, like, they're just acting out what they're claiming to believe. You live out your, if you think you're a, a victim, your life will be filled with you being the victim. And so all of us are acting out our most fundamental narratives. And what was Abraham doing? He was saying, come into the light, leave the darkness. Instead of seeing everything through the eyes of death and chaos and decay and crisis and hopelessness, come into the light and know that there is hope. And know that the giver of life only gave us this as a gift. And so now a separation process is happening back to like the cores of the Garden of Eden. When we ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, good and evil was intertwined. It used to be separated. It became intertwined and it actually entered into us where all of us are mixed with good and evil. And as we approach now, it's being separated out. A much deeper than nationalities it's much deeper than religion. It's taking us all the way down to the essence of creation itself, taking us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And so this process is not going to be simple, and I don't think that it's going to be um, swift. It's a process. And how do we manage through this process? It is to strengthen the life within us. It's to strengthen our emunah. It is to strengthen our bitachon. It's to strengthen our trust in God. That in all of this darkness, if there was ever a people that could say existence is bad, there's never been a people that's been more persecuted than Israel. And here we are saying to everyone, a living testimony, life is good. Life is a blessing. The only people that are messing things up are humans. If humans choose to walk in the light, to experience this world for what it is, a gift, this world can be something that our wildest imaginations can't even imagine. Something so beautiful that we have to say heaven on earth because our words can't describe it. So now we need to strengthen our imuna, strengthen our bitachon, take it. That's what will take us to the finish line. That's what's going to take us to a new Jerusalem. And that's what's going to take us to a house of prayer for all nations. It's tahara. It's celebrating life. In all of the sadness, and in all of the pain, and in all of the fear, and in all of the suffering, it is to celebrate life for the gift that it is. And someone asked me, they said, is this something that you can choose? It seems like some people are just born in darkness, and some people are born in light. And the answer is, everyone can be saved. That's what I believe. Everyone can be saved except for Amalek. Everyone can be saved. And so Abraham was the beginning, bringing people into the light. And now nothing has changed. It's much more than religion. It's not trying to convert someone to Christianity or to convert someone to Judaism. It's to bring people into the light and the love of God. That's what we need to do now. And so what is it? You know, what is the ultimate Jewish saying? Lechaim. It's like to life. That's what we toast. We don't toast to health. We don't toast to freedom. We don't toast to God. We don't toast to family. What do we toast? Lechaim. To life. That's our core. That's what we're saying. Life. 
for life is worth living. Life is beautiful. Life is good. And all of these forces, the climate activists, I mean, is it shocking that the people that are pro-abortions are pro the people that are killing children? Really, what's the difference between killing a child inside the womb and killing a child as a human shield or killing a child in an act of resistance of the occupation? Obviously, those people that are for killing children, their inner, inner, inner core is filled with darkness and filled with tum'ah. It's filled with like a death force. It's like the fundamental babushka doll is dark. And so right now there is a war and many won't want to be converted. They will fight to the death for death and they will worship their God in acts of barbarism and savagery and evil. And the only one that can vanquish them are the soldiers of light. And that's really who the IDF are. And that's what we're called to do. And, you know, I find it amazing that the conservative movement in America now is really being split. You know, they were people that I thought were staunch supporters of Israel, very famous people that are now saying, we don't really support Israel anymore. We're, we are isolationists. That's the new thing. We don't want to get involved in Ukraine. We don't want to get involved in Israel. America first. We're going to get involved in America. And that and that's winning a lot of hearts now in America. Because why not? It makes sense. What they don't understand is that jihad, those people that are worshiping their God through acts of war and killing and death and rape and torture, and the more gruesome, the more perfect their worship of their God is, they're not stopping in Israel. They're coming for you. And so if we don't unite, not based on our nationalities, but based on our values, based on what we believe this world should be, people that worship death and worship their God by creating more death lose the right to exist on this planet, according to the Torah. They need to be removed from this planet. In fact, that's what they want. They want to die as martyrs. And I would like to fulfill their wish. And so America now is really in a crossroads. Are they going to stand up, not for America, but to stand up for what's right, to stand up for what's true? Because if they don't, the evil will reach out to them. Israel just happens to be on the front lines. And so Hashem should bless us to give us the light that we need the light on the inside, that we don't ever fall into despair, that we don't fall into resentment, that we don't fall into hopelessness, because that is literally the dots. That is Tum'ah. But to really, really pray for Tahara, to be Tahor, to be pure, to be filled with light, to know that all of this ultimately will be good. The Jewish people have lived through Pharaoh. And we've lived through the Babylonians and we've lived through the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans and the Turkish. <laughs> and we've lived through communism and we've lived through the Nazis. We're going to live through this, folks. Do you know why? Because life is stronger than death and God is stronger than ever. And so soon, God's name will be one. That's what Zechariah says. By Yom Mahu, on that day, Hashem will be one and his name will be one. Because right now, some people are calling Allah God and doing acts of war and murder. And they're saying, that's God. 
on that day, God will be one and his name will be one. They won't be calling Allah anymore and they won't be killing on behalf of their God anymore because God will be one and his name will be one. We will all be calling on the name of Hashem and celebrating life. And so I want to bless you all. I want to bless you all for being a blessing to us. And I, I really hope that it strengthens us to know what we need to strengthen within ourselves, what we need to pray for, to pray for tahara, to be tahor, to pray to be pure. What does that mean? It means to pray that Hashem should always give us an inner light of life, of hope, to know that the future is going to be bright. And then that is what will banish the darkness. So my dearest friends, Yevarechecha Adonai Veishmerecha Ya'er Adonai Panav Elecha Veichuneka Isa Adonai Panav Elecha Veyasem Lecha Shalom May Hashem bless you and guard you. May Hashem shine His light upon you. May Hashem lift His face, countenance upon you and bless you with peace. Shalom, my friends. We'll see you again next week. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the Land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.